Welcome to episode number four in this series on grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Virgin Mother, pray for us. Last episode, we spoke about, in more depth, the importance of sanctifying grace. So hopefully, at this point, we have somewhat of a foundation and understanding of the importance of both actual and sanctifying grace. Both of these are types of ingratiating grace. That is, again, that kind of grace that makes us favorable and pleasing to God. Remember that both of these also, as all grace, comes from the merits that Christ has won for us from the cross. Actual grace, just as a quick recap, are these nudges that move us towards action. They illuminate our mind as well as strengthen our will and in some ways can even help us physically in order to keep us from sin or help us to perform some good. We as Christians, we can never, we know that we can never make an action that is salutary, again, for our salvation, or one that will store up rewards for ourselves in heaven in any way without grace operating first. Because of our nature, we are limited to our nature. We cannot reach up and above our nature towards God without Him who is there to help us. So we are absolutely in need of His help in every way. We are specifically in need of His help in relation to this moving above our nature and towards salvation. How can we be united to God? How is it possible that we participate in His divine life? Only by grace first. Actual graces that move us towards justification, that move us towards the sacraments, that move us towards receiving sanctifying grace. And once we have sanctifying grace, then we cooperate in that sanctifying grace with those actual graces in order to strengthen and beef up that sanctifying grace, specifically and predominantly in the sacraments. So both of these graces are necessary. Although we say that sanctifying grace is superior than an uh, actual grace, which is always kind of subservient and for the sake of, for the means of sanctifying grace, we should both understand, though, that although there is that distinction, there is also this reality that both are necessary. We need sanctifying grace, otherwise heaven is not possible. But without actual grace, sanctifying grace is not possible. I want to speak in today's episode about the entourage of grace, as I mentioned in the last episode. Entourage of grace simply just meaning those kind of associates, in a sense, of grace. Now, as we take grace in its most broad form, free favor from God, then everything that's in this can be understood as grace. But that which I am going to explain as the entourage of grace is distinct from sanctifying and actual grace. It's distinct from ingratiating grace, in other words. And so I want to make that clear because neither of these are should be considered a sanctifying grace or actual grace, but rather they should be distinct, they should be understood as distinct from them, but very much closely related to them as we will see. Before we do so though, in order to have just a little bit fuller of an understanding of sanctifying grace, I think it's beneficial for us to look at three very significant characteristics of sanctifying grace. So we already know that it dwells within the soul, that it unites us to God, that it allows us to participate in his life, that it makes us living members of his family, that it unites us in communion to Holy Mother Church, to the communion of saints, binds us to Christ, and therefore to all of those who are bound to Christ. 
But there are three characteristics beyond all of that I have said that are important. One, sanctifying grace has the characteristic of uncertainty. That is, we can never know fully, perfectly, that we have or are in sanctifying grace. We can have very many reasons to believe that we are. We can see various signs that demonstrate that we are. And in addition to this, we can also have great certainty, much certainty. But we cannot have absolute nor perfect certainty. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 St. Paul, although he does at various times express his belief that he will be in heaven. For instance, at one time, if you remember, and right now it escapes me the passage where this is in, but St. Paul speaks about how to die is gain because he then will get to meet Christ and be united to Christ and enjoy the fruits of heaven. But to live is to stay in fruitful gain. And we'll discover, I think, a little bit more as we discuss merit, what this fruitful gain in this life means. But for this point of the characteristic of uncertainty in terms of sanctifying grace, what I mean to say with all of this is that St. Paul, although he has great certainty of his union with Christ on earth, and therefore also that will translate into heaven after this life, he also mentions in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that this is what is necessary. In other words, that although we always can have great, should have great confidence in God and can have great confidence in the fact that I am in the state of grace because of various things. For instance, if I just went to confession, I poured my heart out. I'm absolutely contrite. I did as best as I could in confessing all of my sins. I've named every mortal sin that I possibly could think of then there's good reason for you to believe that you are in sanctifying grace. And especially if you're able to see, for instance, spiritual growth and ability to grow in various virtues, overcome certain habitual sins of the past called vices. If you're able to uh, overcome those as well as to give of yourself, if you notice that you're thinking more of others, that you're spending more time with God, that you're able to, 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 to pray more easily, these are goods. These are red flags, in a sense, that very likely you're in the state of grace. However, we can never have perfect certainty. This is one of the reasons why our understanding of salvation does differ from those of many Protestants, not necessarily all, believe that uh, faith is something that is what's called fiduciary or of confidence driven. In other words, that once I profess, once I confess, I have absolute certainty. I know as much and as clearly as I know that my hand is now turning to face me, I know that I am in the salvation of God and I will be saved. And then other people even add to this that that salvation in no way can ever be taken away which we would disagree with both of those, that ask, yes, we should have great confidence in God, and yes, the Lord gives us many reasons and many different, let's say, red flags again, to help us to understand that we're on the right path, that we are traveling that narrow way, that we are picking up our cross and following Him. But always, we have the realization of who we are, that salvation is based on God and His grace and what He does, yet He gives me the freedom to reject Him. And because at any moment, in any singular moment, I could reject his grace 
commit a mortal sin and thereby lose, in a sense, my key to heaven. Now, always, of course, God calls us back. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But in that instant, I'm in mortal sin. I no longer have sanctifying grace. I no longer am justified before God. And I have no ability to participate in the divine nature nor live the eternal life, the life of God here and now. God is no longer dwelling within my soul. My life of the soul or soul of the soul or life of the life as it can all be translated is no longer present. That greatest action that's even more powerful than when God created the universe when he takes a sinner to become a saint. That is absolutely gone, destroyed, downtrodden at the moment of a mortal sin. When a soul leaves the flock of God for the sake of self-love, in other words, for the sake of seeking one's own pleasure or satisfaction to the extent of committing a mortal sin, and mortal, that soul dies. The spiritual life, the supernatural life, the eternal life of the soul is lost in that moment. Again, that's why, thank God, we have the sacrament of reconciliation and we continue to seek that and to use that, hopefully. Please, again, use the sacrament of confession. But to understand that, never do we have absolute and perfect certainty of salvation. That is not something that is offered, and we have reasoned many reasons in the scriptures to understand that that is not something that is offered, unless God somehow privately helps you understand that you are in the state of grace and you will never leave it, which is possible and does happen and has happened to various souls that have been told that they will be with God after this life, which is an unbelievable gift. But we who are still fighting this spiritual warfare, and always we should remember it is a spiritual warfare in which we are in, in which we are, then we must continue to fight. And we must continue also to realize that we can lose this fight if we take our eyes off God, if we stop striving and seeking and pursuing and using the sacraments and learning and growing and praying. If we leave off these virtues that we have built in this process of sanctity, easily, very easily, so easily, we can lose our salvation, our sanctifying grace. At which point we need actual graces then, once again, to continue to move us towards a true contrite heart that is willing and desirous to enter into the confessional, offer these sins, confess them well, accept and be willing to accept that penance that the priest offers, and then receive the absolution that God loves to give us. So uncertainty we can have much confidence. Please understand that. I don't want to say in any way that we should always be absolutely nervous and, 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 and trembling at every moment, but rather always trusting in God and his goodness and understanding that God wants my salvation even more than I do. And he gives everything that's necessary. Every human person has sufficient grace, has sufficient grace to, to enter into heaven. But in recognizing my own weakness, I do realize that I can lose that and therefore I must keep my eyes and focus on him. Second characteristic is inequality. Quote, we are justified by the justice and merits of Christ in such a fashion that this becomes formally our own justice and holiness. End quote. We do not as Catholics believe that once you leave this life, that everybody that enters into heaven is somehow equal. In every way. We also do not believe that everybody in this life 
receives the same amount of graces, actual grace or sanctifying grace, either or. We believe rather that there is great inequality, that somebody may receive more from their baptism or from their confirmation or from their reception of Holy Communion than somebody else. One, because they may be using those sacraments more frequently. Obviously, we can't receive one twice or three times or any more confirmation or baptism, but certainly the Eucharist and reconciliation, these are things that we can use often. And the more frequent that, that we do, the more grace that we're receiving. Secondly, sanctifying grace is unequal in that God himself, unequal, sorry, in that God himself can choose to give us more or less depending on who we are. He may particularly desire to give a person more grace because of his great providence and holy will. He may recognize very clearly that this person will be able to help in the salvation of more souls with extra grace, or maybe this person really just needs extra grace in order to get into heaven or something of this sort. Realize that the amount of sanctifying grace that we have in this life, that is what transfers or translates into our level of perfection in the life to come. Although every soul in heaven will be perfect, there is not an equality amongst every soul. For instance, a Saint Jerome who spent his life in ascetical practices, that is fasting and, and giving of himself and sacrificing and accepting pain, etc., and at the same time, studying the, the, the Word of God, dedicating himself entirely to understanding and knowing God, as well as uh, having the ability to help others to know God. He translates the Bible into Latin and, and enables other people to read it and to read it more understandably, etc. That life is very different from the person that lived a terrible life, but at the moment of his death, converts and offers himself to God. Think of uh, St. Dismas, as he's traditionally called, the good thief, if there is such a one. But the thief that is uh, crucified next to Christ, but at the end of his life, he turns and he confesses Christ and he gives himself to him. And Christ tells him that you will be in paradise with me. That's profound. That is very expressive of how good, how holy, how awesome God's mercy is and the way in which he desires even the smallest crack that opens in our hearts to enter in and to flood with mercy and sanctifying grace, that soul to transform it in his mercy and grace, the beauty of the divine rays of God. However, there is an utter difference in the way in which both of these characters, St. Dismas as well as St. Jerome, participated in the life of God and in the grace that God has given them. And so because St. Jerome has cooperated so much, then there is more for St. Jerome because of what he's done in the way in which he's lived. So therefore, there is inequality in the amount of sanctifying grace that God may choose to give to any person at any given time. At the same time, there's inequality because of how receptive we are. In other words, I may go to the Eucharist fully, fully closed, or let's say mostly closed. I go, I love the Eucharist, but it's not that important to me. I'm very distracted that day when I go to Mass, and I don't prepare myself well. I show up late. I'm just, I'm not that into the Mass. And then I'm sitting next to somebody, let's say, who showed up 10 minutes before Mass, is dressed very well, has prepared his heart, his body, his soul, his life, seeks thirst and hungers for that Eucharist, is worshiping God with everything that that person has throughout the Mass, 
that person is going to receive more because of their disposition internally than I am because of my disposition internally. So God chooses how much grace he desires to give each person, and it's not the same with every person. Think of the Blessed Virgin. That's the most clear example. She receives unique grace beyond all. She is full of grace. We are not. But then also our own dispositions. And then in addition, as I said, how we cooperate with it. Like St. Jerome, who cooperates much with the graces of God versus another who squanders many of those graces. So this is based on the generosity of God, and it is based on our receptivity and cooperation. That is, the inequality, the characteristic uh, of, of inequality with sanctifying grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 through 11 says, quote, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity. End quote. You see that? The way in which we cooperate, this matters. That there is reward for those who cooperate more with the graces of God versus those who cooperate less with the graces of God. That there is not everybody enters into heaven and everybody's on this same playing field. No, rather God is just. And in that justice, that justice first and foremost speaks of how God is the rewarder of those uh, that, that cooperate and merit and earn in this life. Therefore, God loves to reward those who cooperate with his graces. God loves to reward those who build up virtue. God loves to reward those who fight the good fight, who seek, who strive, inch by inch, clawing their way forward in the spiritual life, rather than to give up or to let go or to just try to sneak into heaven. Third characteristic. Sorry, before I move to the third, one last part of inequality that is, that the increase may be thought of in a couple of different ways. When you think of increase of sanctifying grace, perhaps the analogy of a, true, of a tree excuse me, is more useful. When you think of a tree, that is the, the, the roots that spread out and more deeply into the ground. And this is important, obviously, to get the nutrients that is necessary for the tree. But in addition to this, it also firmly plants and makes stronger that tree into the ground. And then the tree also, of course, grows upwardly. Likewise, we can think of sanctifying grace in this way. The more that we cooperate with the actual graces, once we're in sanctifying grace, as St. Thomas said, co cooperating with those actual graces, those nudges, helps us to further increase that sanctifying grace, as well as to protect ourselves from falling out of, by way of mortal sin, that sanctifying grace. Therefore, with sanctifying grace, the increase moves downward like a tree's roots in that it plants us more firmly in the path of Christ. That's, that, that sanctifying grace, in a sense, is growing more deeply into the recesses and the depths of the soul. So it's harder to root that out. It becomes harder for me to create a mortal sin. Why? Well, because as my mind, as my intellect is illuminated more and more, I see more and more right from wrong. I begin to see as I grow in holiness how devastating evil is. And the more that I love God, then the more I want to do everything that's necessary for me not to in any way offend him. I love God, and therefore I want to do everything that's required of me to overcome any kind of offense. But then secondly, as my will becomes softer and softer and stronger and stronger, then I want to choose in love God. You see, truth 
is very significantly important for us. Without truth, we have no salvation. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But truth has to do with our intellect. Made in the image and likeness of God, we have reason, animals do not, and through this reason, we're able to know God. So necessary to know him. And I don't just mean know him theologically or academically. I mean to know him in that you know his movements. You understand and see because of the time you've spent, because of the prayers uh, that you've offered, you begin to know his movements of grace in your soul, and you begin to recognize him in his creation and other things. But then the will allows us to choose. Do we choose God's will or do we choose our will? Do we choose self-love or do we choose love of God? Something far greater, far more powerful and far supernatural. And so truth, that's the mind. And when I speak about the will, I'm speaking about love. That's what it is to choose the good for the other. That's what love is. That's what God chooses for us in his death and in all of these graces that he offers us. And the fact that he offers us salvation through the sacraments and confession over and over and over again, all of these things. And so when I say that, I, that, 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 that as we grow in holiness and these graces, they help to illuminate our minds as well as to strengthen our wills, I'm speaking about it makes it easier for me to know the truth and then to choose that truth in love. So the increase of sanctifying grace then, it is downward in that it becomes more implanted in the soul and therefore more difficult for me to commit a mortal sin. And then also upwards in that the sanctifying grace helps me in many different ways in building up virtue, which then lend themselves and eventually reach, hopefully, bearing fruit, fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. And then in addition to this also uh, beatitudes eventually, in other words, the perfection in a sense of those virtues to the extent where I am able truly to mourn well, I am able truly to be fully uh, meek and humble of heart, etc. The third characteristic is amissibility. Amissibility simply is a fancy word meaning that it can be lost. Sanctifying grace can be lost. As Catholics, we do not believe, and for so many good reasons, because Scripture is so clear on this, we can lose our salvation. We must continue to seek and to strive. It is not based on our actions, but it is certainly in cooperation with our actions. Our salvation is based on God's grace alone, but we can reject that grace or we can cooperate with that grace. So it is based on God's grace, but it is also based on the fact that I have the free will to choose God or not to. I forget what saint Again, I think it's St. Augustine, but I'm not sure, that he says that God created us without our free choice, without our choosing or cooperating, but he will not save us without our cooperating. Salvation is not automatic. A lot of people, unfortunately, including many Catholics, live in a style, in a manner of life that seems to suggest that salvation is automatic, that it's something easy. Well, if it's easy, why does Christ talk about the broad way that leads to hell? Why does Christ speak about hell over and over again? Why is he warning people? In reality, he's warning people in a time where people are much more religiously minded. Nowadays, you can have Catholics and Protestants and all kinds of people that believe in God live the same way as atheists live. We've got to reject this falsity 
We've got to realize that salvation, we have one chance at this in this life. After this life, we have no ability to say sorry. After this life, we have no ability to change our mind. After this life, we have no ability to increase nor store more and more rewards and treasures in heaven for us. God has given us these moments to do so. Therefore, sanctifying grace as rich and abundant and as beautiful as it is, as necessary it is for our salvation, it is something that can be lost. And therefore, we never trust in our own actions. We must continue to trust in God's, while at the same time having great confidence in his love for us and in his mercy, and that he desires, as I said earlier, our salvation more than even we do. So the more that we depend on him, to consider him, to reflect upon him, to focus on him, rather than always focusing on me or my past or what I've done or what I should do or what if something happens and this, etc., Get rid of those thoughts. Blood of Jesus wash over me. Renounce in the name of Jesus those thoughts and put your mind at ease by resting in God while at the same time realizing that we must fight and continue to do so, but only by the grace of God. 1 John chapter 5, 16-18. This says, quote, if anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin which is deadly. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. End quote. There is sin that is deadly. We can commit a sin that is deadly and therefore roots out, severs from us that sanctifying grace that is so necessary for our salvation. The characteristics of sanctifying grace, uncertainty, inequality, and amissibility, or that it can be lost. Now, I was hoping to not spend so long on those three characteristics, but hopefully that is ho uh, helpful in better understanding what sanctifying grace is, as well as how it works and how we should perceive and look and think and reflect upon it, as well as how we should cooperate with it. But I was hoping to get to entourage of graces, which we will not in this class, unfortunately, but in the next, we certainly will uh, be able to dive more deeply into Sanctifying grace in terms of that which accompanies it, and that is the entourage of grace. Thank you once again for joining me in this episode. I hope to see y'all in the next. God bless.